everyone. Um, if you're reading in the book, it's on page 9, um, but we're going to start at Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of, the, of his body, which is the church. <clears throat> I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full richness, of, full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him um, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. In reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, with whom from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, 
which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All right. Keep your Bibles open there. We're going to be spending most of our time in chapter 2. Uh, we'll cover the, f- uh, the end of chapter 1 a little bit, but not in huge depth, uh, just to set expectations. Uh, I'll start by asking you the, the question. Um, have you, I wonder if you've ever uh, felt like your faith lacks a bit of pizzazz. Uh, I became a Christian when I was about 20, uh, and I remember in those early years uh, just growing enormously in my faith, uh, discovering new things in God's word, learning more about God's love in Christ. I felt like I was on this huge growth curve. It was awesome. I loved it. But after a few years, I felt like I started to plateau a little bit. I uh, still loved the gospel, still loved Jesus, uh, but I started to feel like my faith was lacking a little bit. I'd hear stories of people... Uh, coming to Christ and they have these Damascus Road-like experiences and I think to myself, well, that wasn't my experience. Uh, and then I'd look around and I'd see these other Christians who seem to be so much more godly, so much more disciplined than me and, uh, and I, I started to feel a bit inadequate. Uh, and I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I, I think it's quite a common experience uh, for Christians, as though we need something more. Uh, to make our faith more authentic. I reckon the Colossians uh, were a group of people that risked falling into that same sense of inadequacy. Uh, They were surrounded by a raft of spiritual expressions, religious expressions, some of which I think would have been very appealing uh, to them. But in this next section of Paul's letter, he seeks to address that. He wants them to know just how how much satisfaction, uh, how much fullness there is to be found in in Christ and in Christ alone. And and he really wants to assure them that that Christ is more than enough. Uh, He is more than enough. He has no substitute. He needs no supplement. This is where we we get this in this letter. Now we've got three headings to help guide us through uh, this section. The fullness of God's word, the fullness found in Christ, and then the emptiness of the world. So... Let's start the fullness of God's word. Uh, we saw earlier, um, Paul wanted the Colossians to know how the gospel had been at work. That was uh, sort of the, the key point in that, that first talk. Grounded in the perfection of Jesus, the hope that's held out in the gospel. It was bearing fruit in all the world, faith and love. Uh, and that faith and love was, was springing from the hope that is, is contained in this gospel message. Uh, but one of the things that Paul was really keen to help the Colossians understand is what his particular role was in all of that as an apostle. And in verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, he tells us about his purpose. And he says that his purpose was to present the word of God in all its fullness. But you see, he then goes on to describe that word of God as the mystery. Uh, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, as a well-trained Jew, Paul would have had the deepest reverence for this concept of the word of God. Uh, 
what we know as the Old Testament scriptures today, he would not have treated this concept lightly. And you see, the thing is, at its heart, this word of God was a word of promise. All through their histories, all through their history, God had promised his people restoration. Uh, He promised them peace. He promised them this kingdom where life would flourish under a king who would rule in perfect righteousness. But the question for every new generation of Jew was who, what, where, when was this promise going to be fulfilled? How, how, was, how was it going to come to life? That was the mystery, how this promise was going to be fulfilled. But what Paul's saying is that in the message of Christ, that mystery is no longer a mystery. That mystery is revealed. The promise is fulfilled. And so for Paul... As an apostle with the message of the gospel on his lips, to present the word of God in all its fullness means to present the word of God in all its fulfilment. That's what he means. That's what he's getting at. But you see, this fulfilment of God's word, it has come in a really, really surprising way because look there at verse 27 of chapter 1. What does he say? He says... To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. See, the fulfilment of Jewish expectation is being made known among Gentile nations through the proclamation of Jesus. And Paul's role in all of that was to reveal God's eternal will in Christ to all nations so people from all different cultures all over the world could become full, fully mature in Christ. That's Paul's role in the work of the gospel. And so the gospel is the word of God in all its fullness. And it's really this theme of fullness that then propels us into the next section of this letter. And, uh, and it all starts um, with the apostles' two-pronged plea uh, in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 2. And, uh, and, and I think the rest of chapter 2 kind of fleshes out uh, the details of this two-pronged plea. So let's, let's start, first of all, by looking at his plea in verses 6 to 8. You can see there he says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude, or with thankfulness. Uh, what does it mean to become a Christian? To become a Christian is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what it means. We don't earn Jesus. Uh, We receive him as a gift from God by grace, through faith. We know that. And we know that that faith is not simply just belief. It is trust. It's trust in all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for you as Lord. That's what it means to become a Christian. But what then? Once you've become a Christian, how do you stay a Christian? 
Well, what do what verses 6 and 7 tell us? Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. We become Christians by hearing the gospel and entrusting ourselves to Christ. We continue as Christians by hearing the gospel and entrusting our lives to Christ. That's it. That's the first half of, of Paul's plea. Be strengthened in your faith. Stand firm by sinking your roots deeper into the message that you have already received, the word of God in all its fullness. And friends, I know, I know that that sounds utterly basic. It does. But it is fundamentally important. Fundamentally important. If we don't do this, if we don't sink our roots into what we already know, then we run the real risk of drifting away from Jesus. And that's why there's this second half to Paul's plea. Don't be stymied by the world's emptiness. Don't be stymied by the world's emptiness. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, as I said earlier, the, the Colossians were surrounded by a smorgasbord of spiritualities. And of course, the same goes for us today, doesn't it? You know, the world is full of ideas. Every day we're marinating in a melting pot of messages and they all want to infuse their flavour into us. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Catholicism, Mormonism, atheism, humanism, stoicism, materialism, hedonism, communism, capitalism, individualism, so many isms. And all of these isms, they're all vying for our attention. But more than that, they're vying for our allegiance because they are all laying some claim on our lives, how you should live, why you should live this way, why this way is actually better than that way. And so Paul's warning to the Colossians is as relevant as ever. Be on guard. Watch out that these things don't kidnap you from Christ, that they don't steal you away from him. Because the reality is they can be really, really attractive. They can be really attractive for a life that lasts a few decades. But they have no structural integrity whatsoever for a life that lasts into eternity. And this is the point. See, compared to the message of Christ, the words of the world are empty, hollow, not lasting. They're, they're, they're words that, that are built, they're, they're decaying things. They're not deep things. They're based on human tradition, not God's eternal will. And, and so this is Paul's warning it's the Apostle's plea, don't be stymied by worldly hollowness, but be strong in Christ's fullness. And really, the, the rest of this chapter, chapter 2, provides an open and shut case for why the message of Christ blows every other message in this world out of the water. And if you really take to heart what is being said in these verses, two things are going to flow. Confidence and caution. 
Confidence and caution. Confidence in Christ's fullness, caution towards the world's emptiness. And so let's think, first of all, about the confidence that you and I can take in Christ's fullness from verses 9 to 15. What is it about the Christian faith that warrants your full allegiance? Why should you entrust yourself and invest every aspect of your life in the gospel and in not some other way of life? Well, Paul's about to tell us. And the two words that you can see there at the beginning of verse 9, they are the key. In Christ. In Christ. Verse 9, for in Christ. Our confidence lies in what it means to be in Christ. And, and, and that's what verses 9 to 13 are going to flesh this out for us. A whole catalogue of benefits for what it means to be in Christ. And even if you know these things already, it is well worth soaking in them again uh, and to, just to immerse yourself in these beautiful truths. So let's, uh, let's start, first of all, verse 9. You can see there, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's where it all starts. This is the, this is the truth that underpins every other truth in this passage. Christ's incarnation, Christ's divinity. If this isn't true, then everything else falls over. Because the claims made in this section, they all belong to the realm of, of, of God himself. God alone has the authority to do these things, to forgive sin, uh, to conquer death, to give life. All of these things uh, are, belong to the exclusive domain of God. And and Christ's incarnation and divinity really do lay the foundation of all this. And friends, I just want, I want to encourage you, do not be ashamed to be overwhelmed by what this is saying. Don't be, don't be ashamed to be overwhelmed. One of the risks we run as Christians is to have too low a view of Jesus, too familiar a view of Jesus, if I could put it that way. Uh, we have, I, I think we have very little uh, trouble understanding his humanity, but when it comes to his divinity... I think that's where, where we uh, can run into a bit of trouble. The Scottish theologian, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, and it's an extended quote. And let me tell you, this sounds a lot better in a Scottish accent, but uh, you, you can look it up online. But here, here it is. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, Our problem is that we are not amazed by the question, why the God-man? We assume, of course, he would come. But the gospel begins to amaze us when we learn who it is who has come. It is staggering to the intellect. Indeed, I think one can say, if your intellect has never been staggered by the reality of the incarnation, you don't know what incarnation means. It does not mean Jesus was a little baby. It means... The eternal, infinite, divine one, worshipped by cherubim and seraphim, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, infinite in his being, wisdom, power, majesty, glory, who at a word could dissolve the word that had, world that had sinned against him, was willing to come into this world and assume our flesh in order to become our saviour. It is overwhelming. But that's the great thing about the gospel, isn't it? It is never done overwhelming you. See, as God incarnate, Christ is uniquely qualified to grant life to us and to sustain life in us into all eternity. 
No one can surpass who he is. Nothing can provide more than what he offers. And if this is true, and it is, then it's impossible to find a more solid foundation for life than Christ. Because in Christ, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily. It's amazing. It's amazing. You see, because of that, verse 10, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Can you see the movement here? You know, where verse 9 speaks of Christ's oneness with God, verse 10 now speaks of our oneness with him. And that's what the language of being in Christ describes, this fundamental oneness that we have with Jesus when we entrust ourselves to him. The theologians call this union with Christ, this oneness that we have in it. I cannot tell you, this is such a precious, precious doctrine. Especially when we realise the divine nature of who we are one with. Because when we entrust ourselves to Jesus in faith, we are grafted to him so completely that we can count his fullness as our own. And in that precious union that we have with Christ, all his benefits are bestowed to us. And this is not just something for the future. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's actually a present reality. As one friend told me, steak on the plate while you wait. Mm. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we, we can certainly expect a lot more in the future of our union with Christ. There's going to be heaps of benefits to come. But that doesn't mean that it's not a full and complete reality for us now. In Christ, the work is done. But, but what work is done? What exactly is done? What fullness does Christ impart to us? We'll take a look there, verse, verses 11 to 13. Here, here are some of the catalogues of benefits. Uh, verse 11, first of all, in, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. This is a very graphic meta- metaphor, the metaphor of circumcision. Uh, but uh, the, the notion here, this, the circumcision that, that Paul's referring to here, it, it refers to something much more than the Jewish ritual. Uh, just that it, it's much more than that. The circumcision of Christ actually refers to the death of Christ. And, uh, and Paul uses this graphic metaphor to emphasise the fullness of what Christ's death has achieved for you and me. Sin corrupts our human beings so extensively that death is the only means by which it can be removed. This is the the constant message of the scriptures. Sin poisons every part of us, all the way to our soul. It pollutes our mind, it distorts our desires, it corrupts our relationships, it it robs us of joy, it fills us with fears. This, This is the comprehensive nature of sin. Sin destroys our souls. But what Paul's saying here is that Christ's death has dealt with our old sin-riddled self completely. 
Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, has been stripped off in his death. That's why we sing words, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. You see, the thing with this is that it's not just stripped off. It's forgotten. It's hidden. It's buried. And so verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This language of baptism here, it means to be completely wrapped up in what Christ has done, completely overwhelmed, flooded by what he has done, embraced by his mercy, embraced by his glory, embraced by his gospel's hope. And for our old self to be buried with him, it means that God no longer sees our old self. Small confession here, and if Liz was here, she would be able to testify to this. Sometimes when I get changed at the end of the day, I just throw my dirty clothes on the floor. Same. Same. Yeah. Preach it, brother. We're not alone, I can tell you, mate. That's where they stay. I know that this is not a good thing for a 45-year-old man. It's, it is... Not good for me to do that. I should put them in the dirty clothes basket, but that's where they stay. In Christ, our dirty rags are not just thrown on the floor, they're buried. They're put out of sight. Gone. As Christ takes us into himself, through faith, our very selves are taken on the cross with him, and our very selves are placed into that tomb with him. Dead and buried. But you see, there's more to it than that still, isn't there? Because as his body, our very selves are raised to new life with him. In Christ, we have been raised from the dead and a new life has emerged. Verses 12 to 13, wrapped up in Christ, you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. In Christ, we're the work of a new creation. And all of this is ours in him. And all of these things, they're just so deep and profound truths. Here is life on offer to you in Christ. It's incomparably precious. What other philosophy offers such a complete renovation and restoration of your soul? What other ideology offers the gift of life like this so freely, so graciously, so comprehensively? And what other religion can offer more assurance than this?
God gives us this by grace, not by works. In Christ, God has done this for us. And when we surrender ourselves to Christ in faith, when we get wrapped up in all his fullness, all of this comes to us. Nothing else compares to it. Nothing else compares to it. In my sin, I am corrupt, condemned, dead, hopeless. But in Christ, I can be perfectly confident that I'm forgiven, free, and triumphant, filled with hope. Because what do verses 14 and 15 tell us? He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is what God has done for us. And that's the fullness of Christ. And I'll say that if you have a growing appreciation of that, and if you have a growing appreciation of what is yours in Christ, then I think you will find it very difficult to be dissatisfied. I do. But if you take your eyes off it, and I've got to say that we are all very inclined to do that, I certainly am. If you take your eyes off it, then you will open yourself up to finding significance in much more superficial things. And that's why Paul goes on to say what he says in the rest of this chapter, verses 16 to 23, the emptiness of the world. Be cautious. Be cautious. Before we dive into this section, I think it's really helpful to remember who it is that Paul's talking to here. He's talking to the Colossians. He's talking to the people that have heard the message of the gospel and they, they trust and they love and they have hope. These guys, they had it together. They're not wayward, flaky Christians. They're solid. But they still need to hear this warning. Don't let anyone judge you. Verse 16. And don't let anyone disqualify you. Verse 18. And I think it's worth noticing how both of these warnings... I think it's very interesting that both of these warnings are concerned with what other people put on you. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. These judgments coming from other people. Right? Paul's warning them about spiritual peer pressure, I think. And the thing is, a spiritually concerned person, someone who is genuinely concerned, concerned with their soul, genuinely concerned with their relationship with God, genuinely concerned with living life to, to glorify God and to please God, a, a spiritually concerned person is always going to want to be a spiritually conscientious person. We, we want to do the right things by God. And I think the, you know, the Colossians wanted to do that. I want to do that. And there are, I think there are two distortions of Christian faith that can often be presented to us to make us feel guilty. They appeal to our spiritual conscientiousness and they make us feel guilty. And those two things are moral religiosity, where rigorous discipline and following a strict diet of religious order gives you a sense of deservedness. That's one. But the other thing is this mystical spirituality. You know, where 
some sort of out of this world ethereal experience somehow authenticates uh, your faith. So two things, moral religiosity, mystical spirituality, and I think both of these things are on view in Colossians 2. And so let's think of the first one. First of all, don't be judged by moral religiosity. Or you can see there, verse 16. He says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come, but the reality is found in Christ. You can see that what you eat, what you drink, what festivals you celebrate, you know, sometimes people can make you feel guilty because you're not following their rules. And there are so there are plenty of so-called Christian churches out there that will do this. My family's history, I alluded to it in the interview, is in one of these so-called Christian cults. Well, you have a television, do you? Tool of Satan. Oops. <laughs> oh, you mix with people that aren't part of this group. That's a sin. Oh, you went to the grand final last weekend? Evil. Now, don't get me wrong here. I do think that some of the things that we're exposed to in this world and on television aren't almost always the best things for our faith and and if the things that you see on, on television aren't helpful for your faith, then it might be good to turn it off. It might even be good to sell it. But when you are drawn into a thou-must-do-this religion in order to access the full riches of life, then you've lost touch with God's grace. It is no longer about grace. It's about what you can do. And so Paul's first warning, don't let people shift you away from the forgiveness and the freedom that Christ has won on the cross. Don't let them shift you away from that by making you feel guilty that you don't follow their rules. Rules are man-made inventions with no lasting substance. Christ is the eternal living God. Following him in faith will save you. Following rules will not. second warning in this passage is, I think, more concerned with that mystical spirituality. Verse 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. It's quite likely that, uh, that one of the folk religions that the Colossians were contending with was, was one that kind of prioritised the worship of angels. Uh, the details are, are a little bit sketchy, but from Paul's description here, you can, it, it's not hard to imagine what that might have looked like. You know, people regularly talking about the latest window that they had into the spiritual realm. You know, ecstatic outbursts in some special spiritual language, humble brags about the spiritual insights a particular angel had given them that week. Imagine how inferior you could be made to feel 
in that context. If your spiritual antenna wasn't tuned in to the right spiritual angelic frequency. <laughs> Paul wants to reassure the Colossians that these things offer about as much nutrition to the soul as fairy floss does to the body. Because <laughs> what does he say? What does he say? Verse 19. The person who's proclaiming that he doesn't hold on to the head and hold on to Jesus from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. People who promote fairy floss faith are running around like headless chooks. If Paul was Australian, he's probably, that's what he'd probably say. You've, heard, you've all heard that, that saying, right? Running around like a headless chook. Well, here they are. They have lost connection with the head. And here's the thing with a headless chook. It is a little bit disturbing, this, uh, this analogy. But the thing with a headless chook is they have all the appearance of life, but it's not going to last long. <laughs> I, actually, I actually became quite intrigued by this concept of the headless chook. I'm, I'm sorry to go into this. It is a little bit disturbing. But I did find the story of one chicken who became known as Miracle Mike, who apparently lived for 18 months. Oh, holy cow. I don't know I don't know how the, the physics or the chemistry of that work. You can look it up online. It's a little bit terrifying. It's the stuff of nightmares. But headless chooks, I know that's a little bit light, but what we're dealing with here is, is not light at all. Uh, when it comes to what Paul's talking about, it's actually really serious. When we're in Christ, we have life to the full. Our entire future is ahead of us. We can be absolutely confident of that. But if we're not in Christ, if we disconnect from him as our head by connecting to some other seemingly more satisfying things, then death and decay awaits. And this is what he's warning him about. Because these other things, despite what they might look like, they have no power. And so verses 20 to 23... Let me read those out. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They're attractive. Make no mistake with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Fairy floss lacks value. Headless chooks have no power. Anything that is not Christ is empty. And so as we come to the end of this passage, I really want to urge you to take confidence from your union with Christ. He has no substitute. He needs no supplement. You're on solid ground when you walk in him. And be cautious of the worldly philosophies that are circling around you day by day, minute by minute. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Christ is more than enough. Let me pray.
Our gracious Father, we thank you for the wonder of Jesus. We thank you for his absolute fullness. We thank you that in him all of your fullness lives in bodily form. And we thank you for the way that through faith and by your grace that fullness is transferred to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to hold on to that truth and to be staggered by that truth, or to be overwhelmed by that truth more and more every day. Help us to fill our every horizon with the majesty of Jesus so that we would walk in him and not walk away from him. Father, we recognise that there are so many temptations in this world, so many different things on offer. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with a spiritual insight uh, that helps us to say no to these things and helps us to say yes to Christ every day. And we pray this in his name. Amen.